Welcome to Interacting Minds, a podcast on interdisciplinary research. This series is a collection of episodes on play and playfulness in education and culture. My name is Savannah Schultz. And my name is Kim Holfler. And today we talk to Mark Malnoff Anderson about play and predictive processing. Welcome, Mark. Um, you, we have invited you because you have written some really interesting books about play and playfulness. I think um, there's the Tank Pause, which is a Danish book series now coming out in English soon as well. And you're also the author of the Cognitive Theory of Play, or the main author, alongside Andreas Röbstorf, Mark Miller, and then remind me. And Julian uh, Kiverstein. And uh, you have this really interesting research background that we thought would be helpful to start with of... Um, coming also from religion studies uh, as some of our other guests and then moving into more cognitive theory like how did you get there yeah so i did my i did my phd uh, on the cognitive science of religion uh, um, where i sort of looked into um, well religious sensory experiences so in a sense trying to explain within a naturalistic framework with uh, with like current models of perception if it was possible to explain why so many people report seeing and hearing uh, supernatural uh, agents around the world like being contacted by a deceased partner for instance or um in the case of one empirical study that we did, how uh, why it is that so many people uh, report coming into contact with uh, spirits when they uh, use a Ouija board. Mm. Can you say a bit what a Ouija board is for, for those that don't know? Yeah, so uh, a Ouija board, uh, in Danish we call it the, the ghost in the glass. Um, uh, but a Ouija board is, is basically just this this big board with letters and numbers on it, uh, big yes and no response, and you use it to and uh, and it has been used for like 150 years, I think, um, in, in in various forms until it got patented uh, as the Ouija board um, to uh, to make contact with uh, with spirits spirits or deceased um, family members and and that sort. You also done quite a lot of, I think, unique study designs. You used VR to explore Yeti sightings, I think. From well, not Yeti sightings, but we <laughs> we 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 tried to make uh, an experiment where we um, were sure that there were no agents inside the the world that the participants in the experiments uh, encountered, um, because we were interested to see if it was possible to create uh, like false perceptions. So. Uh, what factors go into people thinking that they see something uh, on the one hand and on the other hand being absolutely sure that there, there, there were nothing in there to see. So that's why we used a virtual reality um, experimental uh, paradigm to, to kind of look at that. And what that study suggested was that if you have very strong expectations that you will encounter something uh, combined with a context of very uh, ambiguous sensory stimuli, then that's sort of the perfect cocktail of seeing creatures when none are really present. 
So for both the Ouija board study and this, you use something called the predictive processing framework, I think, that is also bringing you into the play research. Mm. So what is this framework and um, how did you get into play research? Well, so um, so I got into play research, if we do that one first, because there was a job opening. Um, <laughs> basically, um, the Interacting Mind Centers were looking for someone who were willing to take on the daunting task of coming up with ways of measuring uh, the effects of play and um, having experience with mobile eye tracking, virtual reality, and uh, other forms of sort of weird experimental setups, I somehow convinced um, the <laughs> the hiring committee that I was the right one to undertake that task. I don't know if they look back on that uh, decision um, <laughs> uh, uh, with sort of a, a good feeling in the stomachs, but uh, but hopefully they do. Um, and the uh, but uh, the predictive processing framework, which is um, is a framework that's sort of gaining popularity. It is a very prominent framework right now in cognitive science, and it is um, it's a framework that describes the brain as an uh, a, an error a prediction error minimizing organ. So the uh, in in the same way as we would probably all agree that the function of the heart is to pump blood around our body. Mm. This framework um, states that the main function of the brain is to minimize prediction error. So that comes sort of off the idea that the brain is this sort of prediction machine that constantly makes prediction about the sensory input that it is um, that it is expecting to uh, to sort of uh, to encounter. And if the brain is wrong, uh, which it is all the time, um, about uh, various predictions, then uh, and there's a mismatch between the sensory input we receive and the predictions that we we create. Um, the idea is that this elicits uh, prediction errors, and um, and the fundamental idea is that one of the sort of main mechanisms of the cognitive cognitive architecture is to minimize these prediction errors in various uh, ways. Could you give an example? So when we encounter prediction errors, we can um, we can make them go away uh, through two main pathways, you could say. We can either um, make the world conform to our expectations um, an example of that would be when we go outside when it's winter and it's very cold, then uh, one of the things that this framework states is that we have these sort of born, uh, sort of we are born with hard, some hardwired expectations that we can't unlearn. Uh, we, for instance, expect to be around uh, th uh, 37 uh, degrees Celsius warm with our bodies. Um, so when we go outside and it's winter, we uh, start getting all these prediction errors and we start getting cold and that's not very pleasant. So in order to get the prediction errors to go away, we make the world conform to what we expect and we expect to be 37 degrees and the way we do that is we take on a jacket. 
that way we are now encountering a sensory stream uh, that is that fits our expectations um, that's the one uh, way we can do it the other way which is a very uh, which happens often is that we uh, we we make we try to make better predictions we uh, in other words we learn so if we learn that this door opens outwards and not inwards we can change our model of the world and form more accurate predictions so that these prediction errors uh, go away yeah and you you use it quite a lot for for understanding uh, play but i think it would be quite nice um, to first talk a bit about how you understand play or how you can characterize it and what does play mean uh, for you so play to me uh, is um uh, an organism or an individual um seeking these seeking or creating i should say seeking or creating these just right amounts of uh, prediction errors or these just right amounts of surprise in an effort to uh, resolve them actually so play is a a behavior where we voluntarily look for error um, in an effort to try to um, make the error go away which sounds quite paradoxical <laughs> yeah, it does yeah and if play is a, a behavior as in, uh, how does it then relate to, to playfulness um, and do you see if there's a difference between play and playfulness uh, in your way of, uh, of, un- of talking about it or understanding it uh, yes I do um, but I think maybe before we go into that question we need to sort of put valence into this this play framework um, so that's it one of the most sort of agreed upon characteristics of play is that it is uh, pleasant or rewarding or fun or whatever word you want to stick onto it and in the sort of predictive processing uh, account of play uh, valence plays an important role um, in the sense that valence is thought positive valence feeling good is thought to come about when we reduce prediction error faster than we estimated that we would so when we are uh, when we happen upon strategies for dealing with the world um, like oh that's the way this toy works uh, then we uh, we sort of get a reward it's almost as if the brain is trying to tell us uh, hey you're doing something right this strategy is working better than the one you previously used stick with this strategy uh, and to make us stick with that strategy sort of gives us this uh, this reward so that's that's an explanation of why in a sense play is fun why we get these fun spikes when we play according to this model it is because we are reducing prediction error faster than we estimated that we would so mood states like playfulness uh, is a little bit different um so a, a mood is typically thought of as this background emotion that is not directed at any particular object or phenomena it's sort of just a a, a general feeling um so but, but according to this framework if you encounter a lot of um sort of better than estimated slopes if you reduce prediction error faster than expected a lot um, then you start to expect that these better than expected slopes are all around you uh, 
Okay. So you you start to to expect to in, to do better than expected. <laughs> you are in a wonderful place where you uh, will probably outperform your previous self. Uh, an example would be if you take a kid to to a theme park, for instance. Um, at the theme park, you eat a lot of candy floss and ice cream, so you uh, you increase your glucosis levels in your blood faster than expected um, right faster than you would with normal food the roller coaster uh, is uh, you know is creating and resolving error faster than the family car is uh, and all of these things combined puts you in a positive mood where you start to expect to do better than expected um, in the environment that you're in uh, which is also why uh, children will sometimes uh, violently uh, protest when they have to leave the theme park yeah yeah so playfulness in a sense is this broader global expectation that i am now in a place where i will probably outperform uh, myself or i will probably pick up strategies that uh, are better than the ones i i i currently have so what's the role of the environment then in this framework if it's so important that you expect to be surprised um yeah so the the environment is is very important uh, as as it is in in most frameworks i would guess um um the structure of the environment so it, an environment f- needs to be fairly rich i'd say for to sort of um facilitate playfulness because you you need an environment with um, a lot of different opportunities, not only for the creation of surprise and prediction error, uh, but also for its resolution. So you sort of you can think of this, I guess, in uh, in terms of how how many uh, types of difficulties um, can uh, a player encounter in this environment and 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 does the environment afford that the organism can find these just right surprises given the particular organism's prior knowledge um uh, so that the organism being sensitive to how its its own predictionary minimization will sort of find the place where it resolves surprises in an efficient way. So before we jump into maybe how this predictive processing theory of play applied to education, um, can you maybe say a bit more about what you mean by this just right amount of surprises? Like, I think we haven't really, like there, there seems to be this kind of sweet spot that you're discussing, but what does that mean? Yeah, um, so this is this is not a new idea. It's sort of been around play research for decades that children um seem to enjoy just right surprises there is this principle from developmental psychology it's called the the goldilocks principle which sort of uh, states that children look for this moderate amount of um uh, sort of incongruity uh, between what they know and and what they encounter so so a just right surprise is simply some stimuli that um, uh, diverge uh, or, or is different from your prior knowledge, uh, but not too different. 
So um, it's not overwhelming in a way. Precisely, yeah. so that it so that it does not uh, overwhelm you. There are s- similarly several studies that document that children do not like uh, too much surprise either. There's these. <laughs> quite <laughs> uh, horrific i wouldn't call them but uh they're, they're like you know had these experimental studies in the 70s where you know you expose children to a jack-in-a-box for instance and uh, show them uh, show that they they do not at all like like it when um uh, when this clown jumps out of a box if they are too small for instance and that yeah. kind of stuff so and and similarly there are uh, other experimental studies that suggest that children prefer um for instance that infants for instance uh, that infants sorry for instance um prefer to look at um moderately complex pictures mm. compared to very simple pictures or very complex pictures but the framework is for both children and adults right yeah Yeah, um, and I think we like quite often to talk about uh, education and, and purposes and, and how it could be used or uh, applicated in different ways. Um, I think a quite interesting um, topic would be how educators could use this or design for moderate amounts of surprise, um, design for this uh, sweet spot as, uh, as you just talked about. Yeah, so... Um So it's it's more difficult with adults in a sense because if you're a kid, uh, it's easier to be surprised mm. because you do not know as much about the world as an adult do. Um, so adults tend to have much more strong expectations about how uh, events in the world are going to play out. Uh And it is often difficult, or it can be difficult, to place an adult in a situation where they uh, will be surprised. Uh, but then, on the other hand, we do it still all the time. We, when we watch, you know, TV or whatever. Um, if we watch Game of Thrones, then we are constantly uh, surprised when our favorite uh, character dies, and we in, we enjoy that uh, very much. But um, I'm sometimes asked, you know, how do I, uh, how do I become uh, playful at work, for instance? Uh, that can be really difficult because you are um, probably pretty optimized uh, in your strategies uh, when you have a uh, when you um, uh, when you have a certain job. You know how you uh, you conduct your job in a very efficient way, so it is difficult for you to. Um, optimize uh, in 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 those uh, settings, but but if you want to design for playfulness, um, I'd say that it is uh, that some of the didactic principles that you should probably try to utilize is one: try handing over agency to the uh, learner, um, trusting that the learner will find their way to the most enjoyable activity within the learning space. And and in this model, the most enjoyable uh, behavior is the uh, most efficient uh, behavior. So, um, or at least it is the, the behavior that optimizes previous behavior the most. So that's one thing. Let the learners take over in a way, find their own way. Uh, and... So, And so this also means that 
um, that teachers become more a facilitative yeah. guide um, that has to construct a learning environment where there is enough of an opportunity uh, to encounter and extract a surprise mm. uh, no matter what the prior knowledge of the uh, learner um, is. To me, it sounds a bit like uh, some of the uh, earlier play theories, um, but uh, just in a more uh, cognitive approach. And uh, I'm mostly thinking about uh, play theorists as Johan Huizinga and uh, Gregory Bateson and uh, and uh, and other people uh, after them. But for for example, for Johan Huizinga, uh, he has this concept concept of uh, a magic circle. It's a, a space, often called um, a sacred spot, that you can go into and is bound by different rules and uh, and settings than the ordinary world. Um, it's a different environment where different things can happen. Does it in some way resonate with uh, this in- environment that uh, that uh, you talk about for predictive processing? Um, yeah, I, I think it does in, in, in some ways. Um, creating new rules is a way of inducing surprise. So... Uh, and 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 I think that's also what children do when they pretend. Uh, they they manipulate a few things uh, in the world. So they play, for instance, that they are now the mom and you are now the dad, uh, whatever. Um, but they still ascribe to. Uh, uh, they don't like make in- incredibly surprising uh, worlds. They 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 manipulate just a few aspects of reality. Um, but you know, but moms still. Uh, do what moms do and dads still still do what and you still eat with a knife and fork and all that kind of stuff yeah. um so 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 making you know these kind of dogmas or different rules can certainly be a way to to induce i think surprise in a in a learning space but i i actually think that you know the you probably talked about the, uh, the book lifelong kindergarten on on this channel if you haven't Not then I, I i highly recommend it um could be a special episode yeah as so um but but there's a few design principle in that book uh um that uh that to design for playful behavior you should try to make tasks or learning spaces with it uses this spatial me- metaphor uh, you should try to make play spaces spaces that have uh, has uh, have low floors wide walls and high ceilings meaning with the low floors that all learners can engage in the task mm-hmm. with high ceilings that um, you should be able to uh, be really ambitious if you want to in your task uh, solving, yeah. but also wide walls that there should be many ways to complete whatever task you are set. Uh, I think that approach is a bit more specific. Uh, it can be difficult to tell you know, an educator uh, uh, or give give good advice to an educator on how to 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 make a nice playful space uh, by telling them well make a magic circle with where new rules uh, you know uh, constrain uh, the the space um, it 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 is a, a bit a bit abstract uh, and I think that those design principles may make it a bit easier in my own experience. When I've talked to educators and we have tried to sort of co-create um, playful tasks, it's often the 
the white walls thing that is difficult uh, to to embed in, uh, in 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 a playful learning space. So this idea that you can solve a task okay. in a many many ways um, that poses the challenge. I think we should should go into the next topic uh, and and talk about um, your perspectives on on darkness and fear in play because it's also something that's um, sometimes hard to find um, some uh, both new and old perspectives on and uh, and how we can understand uh, it, both its role uh, in children and adults um, but also in, in in different settings. Yeah, so we. Um We've recently got into the business of uh, looking at how humans play with fear as well. Um, we did Who's a s- we for a second? Oh yeah, sorry. So uh, I I work also in the uh, recreational fear lab where um, Matthias Claesen, who's a horror uh, researcher, is the um, the PI. Um, and uh, Matthias uh, and a bunch of other uh, people um, and I did a, uh, published a study, I think it was last year, um, where we looked into visitors at a haunted um, attraction. So a haunted attraction is this place you go, you pay some money to get in, and then there are uh, like 50 to 100 scare actors that tries to scare the shit out of you for for one hour. And uh, what is uh, striking about this phenomena is that uh, humans uh, seem to sometimes really enjoy getting scared. Um, And, you know, most psychology handbooks will tell you that fear is an emotion we have to keep us away from certain stimuli. But but that's obviously not true, uh, at least not all the time. Um, the horror industry is a billion dollar industry and you know people go to things like these Halloween uh, haunted attractions uh, in an effort to be scared and to enjoy themselves. And in this study we we hooked some participants up with heart rate monitors and asked them about their levels of enjoyment and their levels of fear inside the haunted attraction. And we found um, um, we found that enjoyment seems to be maximized at these at this just right uh, level of fear. So too much fear uh, gives you a decrease in enjoyment, and similarly, too little fear also gives you a decrease in enjoyment, which, which is sort of very compatible with the play uh, theory that we talked about earlier. And we also saw that in the heart rate signature of uh, of participants that it also had this sort of that these just right fluctuations in heart rate also correlates with um, with uh, high self reports of enjoyment. So, so it seems that just right amounts of fear as well is something that uh, is associated with enjoyment, just as with all, um, just as with other uh, phenomena where we seem to enjoy just right amounts of uh, of deviances and surprise. So. We have begun uh, speculating um, if, like, why is it that we then enjoy fear as well? And what is the outcome of uh, encounters with what we call recreational fear? Um, We've been looking into nurseries and kindergartens where we did a bunch of interviews with pedagogues and uh, nursery teachers and found that recreational fear is very widespread, at least in Denmark. It's very common to do 
activities with children uh, where they are a little bit scared but mostly enjoying themselves uh, like you know a caregiver uh, or a pedagogue could uh, can often be seen chasing around playfully uh, a kid maybe a play in the dark uh, chase games singing games that's about you know getting caught eaten by a bear all this kind of stuff is very widespread mm-hmm. and children seem to love it um and same is true uh, with halloween which is also very popular with kids but right now our hypothesis is that uh, these encounters with recreational fear that is situation characterized by some sort of frightening stimuli that children enjoy uh, are situations that children learn from and we speculate that this could possibly um, that that encounters with recreational fear could possibly serve as a protective factor against the development of anxiety disorders because you sort of learn to deal with uh, the surprises your your body uh, produces as uh, as you are exposed to a jump scare but then you sort of also learn how to cope and manage those situations at the same time um and we are currently doing a project um with the visceral minds group at au with uh, um who, mike allen is the pi in that group where we um look at the relationship between interoception, that is your ability to recognize your own body signals um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and fear, uh, frightening uh, entertainment. Uh, and it, so it might be the case that recreational fear trains your interoceptive awareness. And, uh, and other studies suggest that, a, uh, that people with anxiety um, tend to have or there's an overrepresentation of poor or inaccurate interoception in these populations so it might be that being exposed to recreational fear is something that lets you learn about your own body signals which in turn makes them less surprising when you encounter them la- later in life which makes you uh, again in turn uh, able to deal with more and more frightening uh, situations without sort of freaking out So is that the takeaway? We should all watch more horror movies that that we should take from this episode? No. Well, I think the takeaway is that uh, we should give each other and children the possibility to uh, engage in moderately frightening uh, environments (laughs) uh, and be sure to give kids and uh, and adults the sort of remote control so that they can turn up the horror level and turn down uh, the horror level to find uh, to find the spot that is just right 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 for them cool thank you so much for joining us and i think uh, do you want to give any shout out to how people can learn more about your work and what the recreational field lab gets up to in the future yeah. how, how can people find you Yeah, so you can go into, I think it's fear.au.dk or just search the Recreational Fear Lab website. You can also go into the Interacting Minds uh, website, which uh, always has a lot of uh, exciting content. Um, Then, as you stated, uh, I will have a book out in the spring of 2022 called Play, uh, which is part of the Reflection series. And uh, you can go and look up the... um, Play in Predictive Minds uh, article, uh, which is about uh, predictive processing and how this framework 
uh, can be utilized to to maybe understand play and playfulness. Fantastic. And we link all of those in the show notes so people can just click on them and find you um, for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, hope to read more about your work in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is edited and produced by Kiersi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermier, and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Kark. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.